Wisconsin's true home team is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Now featuring savings up to $2,500 off an installed patio door, up to $3,000 off an installed entry door, but only through May 31st. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Big sports weekend. Brewers take two or three from Chicago. The Packers end up... You know, having a draft, that it, it's so funny to me that you have all the, these draft prognosticators, and it's almost like anything that they do, anything the Packers do, that, that people are going to be there to, to criticize. So first it was, well, okay, they, they didn't take they, they didn't trade up to take a receiver in the first round of the draft. They just waited and got the two best players that were available. And then they trade up um, in the second round to take the, uh, take a receiver at the start of the second round. Well, they shouldn't have gone and traded up to do this. It, it's almost like you can't win. Bottom line of all this is, all I know is the last several years, the Packers have been very, very competitive. I think that would be fair to say. Haven't won the Super Bowl, which is the objective, but they've been very, very competitive. And my guess is that there's Oh, probably about 31 teams in the National Football League that would like to have their regular season record. And as long as that keeps happening, I think it's tough to really criticize their draft picks too much. But of course, that's what the critics end up doing. All right. Speaking of that, I have made a decision as we move into the election season. I, I'm I'm posting a lot more on Twitter, and I'm posting a, a lot more political stuff on Twitter because, candidly, in the, the three hours I have on a daily program, there, there's not enough time to get into all the different stuff that, that is out there. So I've been using Twitter as a way to kind of express some of my thoughts on some of the current issues. And so if you follow me on, on it's on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 you, you'll see that. A number of different things that are posted, um, including the, the latest controversy involving Tim Michaels. I, I have not made a pick in the Republican primary for governor. I, I think Tim Michaels is a welcome addition to this, and that's not saying anything about any of the other candidates. But it is interesting that Michaels enters the race, and then all of a sudden there seems to be like this flood of people trying to find something wrong with him, and you're getting he's getting all this scrutiny, which interestingly, a lot of the Democratic candidates for Senate, despite the fact that they've been running for months and months and months, they, they get very little of it. The latest question that is out there is, is, where does Tim Michaels live? Tim Michaels is a Wisconsinite. Tim Michaels is a guy who has been part of the, the family business business that's based in Dodge County, really out of, out of Brownsville. I've said this before. Matter of fact, two of well, one of my wife's nieces works for, for the Michaels Corporation, as does her husband as well. Major, major employer. So, I mean, here's the breathless story today. Tim Michaels has homes, very, very nice homes, outside of the state of Wisconsin. He's got a, a several million dollar home in Dodge County. And he's got one home in in New York and um, maybe a second one. I I can't tell. And I don't know if he's got places elsewhere uh, either. 
I, I, I know people in my life who have lots of money, and, and they, have, they have homes in, in different places. Maybe they've got a home in Florida or they've got a home in Arizona. I know one guy who's got a home in Florida and a home in Arizona, but he, he lives in, in West Bend. So that, that, that's their principal residence. That's where they pay taxes. That's where they're, they're residency of. But, you know, they've done well in their life, and they have multiple places that they go. For people who are wealthy, that is not unusual. And that's not unusual among wealthy um, politicians from Wisconsin. When Herb Cole was the U.S. senator, Herb Cole has, and I believe still has, a very, very high-end ranch outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They used to spend a bunch of time at. Nothing wrong with that at all. His principal residence is downtown Milwaukee. Jim Sensenbrenner, for years and years when he was a congressman, they had they had a home, he and his wife, they, they had a very, very nice home in Washington, D.C. They also had a, a condo that was in uh, Lake Country um, out here. If there was any question about the residences, that, that's what happens from time to time. So anyhow, the the question that's out there about Michaels now, it's kind of like the latest, is it a scandal, is, you know, where is his principal residence? And and to me, it's it's really, really simple, and it should be disposed of easily, that your principal residence is, okay, for for state tax purposes and for voting purposes, you know, where where do you live? And it, I, I from all I can tell, Michaels, from the perspective of voting purposes and from the perspective of state tax purposes he's a resident of Wisconsin I don't think there's anything illegitimate about that that's that's as near as I can tell but that's the latest Michael scandal quote unquote and I put that in air quotes that's going on now but I, I've got a number of things like that and if you follow me on Twitter it's at Jeff Wagner 620 you'll see them as well as my takes on this including a look at the new ad that Ron Johnson has come out with and it's an ad that needs in my opinion to run repeatedly, and I've got a link to this. One of the, the quote, big lies that, that's out there is that when Ron Johnson voted for the, the Trump tax cuts in 2017, and you can argue whether they were a good thing or not, but, but one of the ads is, here's the idea. He, he did something that benefited himself because he, he insisted on a provision being put in place that gave small businesses the, this, the same break that large businesses were going to get. And so this has been spun by the left as, oh, this is Ron Johnson trying to enrich himself. Well, y- yeah, his the business that, that he was a part of would have qualified for this, but hundreds of thousands of other businesses also qualified for this as well. It was an important piece of tax policy if you believe those tax cuts were the good thing. Anyhow, th- this is the ad that Ron Johnson has started running, and in my opinion, he should be running a lot because it— Response to what I think is one of the the really misleading ads that's out there. But you can see all that. It's at Jeff Wagner. Um, if you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. All right, let us let us get started. I understand that there is real racism in this world that needs to be called out. At the same time, I, I think there is a point where you need to stand up to some of the the wokeness that is going on. And just because somebody somewhere, somehow, feels they must be or should be offended by something, it it doesn't mean that you should give in to them. Now, I've got a link to this story. It's also in the local newspaper. The story comes from Kaukauna High School. All right, since 1920 or so, the Kaukauna High School, the mascot, 
has been the Galloping Ghosts. That's what they call themselves. Now, there's some disagreement as to how a hundred years ago, they got the nickname the Galloping Ghosts. If you go to the Kokona Library, they've got a history on this. Um, some people suggest that it goes back to an article that was written in the early 1920s when Kokona, their uniforms were all white, and they were playing one of their rivals. They were, pri- they were playing the Appleton Terrors. And what they did is that they were all in white, and they were smaller and quicker, and they were running, and so they—, they, they the, the newspaper started calling calling them the galloping ghosts because they were wearing white uniforms, okay? The, the other theory is that somehow this might be a tribute to Red Grange, who was a football player in the 1920s, who was referred to as the galloping ghost. But regardless, that, that, that's, that is the history of this. In 2000, so 20 years ago, they commission a, a statue— that appears, and if you follow me on Twitter, I've got a, got a link to this. There is a statue that appears in front of the, the high school, and it is a statue of, wait for it, a galloping ghost. Okay, and it and it shows a, a rider on a horse, and the the rider has well, what 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 is what is a ghost? You think of a ghost as somebody with like a sheet over him or something like that. So that's that's it. It's like a rider who looks like a ghost. Okay, and maybe it is a ghost rider. Don't, don't know. All right. So that's put up in twenty in the year two thousand, and at the time when they put this up, one or two people said, well. You know, we're we're a little bit concerned that you know maybe maybe this looks like I don't know it 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 could have some association with the Ku Klux Klan or whatever. So okay, the statue which cost about a hundred thousand dollars. After a couple people said that, the the people who are putting up the statue said, "Wow, no, nobody really ever thought of that." But but okay, here here's here's what we're going to do. We'll make a couple of adjustments to to the rider. So it makes it appear that this is like a ghost as opposed to like somebody from the Ku Klux Klan that's riding on the horse. Okay, so that, that's the deal. There's no association at all with the Ku Klux Klan, none whatsoever. They are the galloping ghosts. And by the way, everybody knows that there's no association with the Ku Klux Klan. This isn't like, hey, it's a statue of Robert E. Lee or um, or Jefferson Davis or anything like that. No, no, no. This is this is a galloping ghost. All right, which brings me to the story. Apparently, there are a handful, just a small handful of students, who, while acknowledging that this has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan, and acknowledging that they know it has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan. But in, in a survey, um, six students apparently provided written statements to the school board, you know, talking about how, you know, they, they had suffered from, you know, years of trauma and hardship um, because of, for example, racial slurs and things like that. So the concern was that, well, what we should do is eliminate the galloping ghost, because even though everybody knows it has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan, it might nevertheless be traumatizing to a handful of students. Now, as you might expect, there's been some pushback in the community. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
All right, so the school board is now going to be meeting to consider various options. One option is take it down. Just get rid of it because, heaven forbid, we should want anybody to, that anybody should feel offended by this. So let's just take it down and do away with it. Another option is just leave it alone. And the third option is leave it up there, but let's put up a plaque explaining, I don't know, explaining the history of the galloping ghost and comforting people, telling them it has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, is this wokeness out of control, or is this a valid concern? And do people in Kaukauna need to be ashamed that they put that statue up, and because you've got a handful of people who were, say that they were traumatized by racism in general, that the statue has to come down? 855-616-1620. We discuss. I'm sorry, this stuff just makes my head explode. <laughs> I, I understand that you, you can have this argument about, gee, should, should we have a, a statue about Robert E. Lee? You know, and should we have a statue about Jefferson Davis? I, I, am, less, I am less concerned about the people who say, gee, we, we can't have something named after George Washington, for example, because uh, George Washington owned, owned slaves. And don't you realize that that sends the, the wrong message? Because I think you have to judge people by, by the times that they lived in. But, but even having said that, sometimes th- this wokeness, you can just feel yourself getting dumber when you listen to these arguments. If you're just tuning in, Kokana High School, they are the galloping ghosts. They have been the galloping ghosts for about 100 years. About 20-some years ago, at a cost of $100,000, they put this big bronze statue in front of the high school that represents a galloping ghost. You have six, six high school students who are now demanding that the the thing be taken down. All right, because they say, well, the Ku Klux Klan was terrible. Oh, okay, right. The students say they understand that the statue was intended to honor the school's galloping ghost mascot. They understand it's not intended as a hateful symbol. They understand it doesn't represent the Ku Klux Klan, but nevertheless, they're demanding it be taken down because they say it creates an unwelcoming environment for people. To which my question is, who in God's green earth views this as an unwelcoming environment? Oh, it's the, this is the galloping ghosts. This is the, the mascot. This is what the team is. It's kind of like up in Rhinelander saying, hey, you've got a hodag. They're the hodags. Well, we can't have the hodags up there because it creates an unwelcome environment. Didn't you see Jurassic Park? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Dave in Green Bay. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I've been by Kakana many, many times. I've seen the ghost on the water tower. Actually, I asked my wife one time, what is that on the water tower? Because it doesn't really explain it on the water tower right. well, but I have been by the statue. I just think people just, they need to really chill. I don't really believe the Klan was a big deal in Wisconsin. And I've been by that statue. It's a, It just looks like a ghost on a horse. Yeah, that's what it, what it is. Like. It's a ghost on to. a horse. Yeah. They need to stop reading. Too. People got way too much time to think about, overthink things. I swear, this generation, 
they overthink, overthink to the point where they're froze. And they should just leave it alone. I think that I think the statue looks great. Yeah, well, it just looks like a ghost on a horse. That's, well, like, it does. They think, I mean, yeah, see, at some point in time, just because you've got a handful, there's always going to be the folks I describe as the perpetually offended and the politically correct. You know, the people that wake up looking for something to be bothered about. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the response has to be, okay, thank you for your concerns. Now, have a nice day. And then you just move on. And that's what the school board should be doing here. Thank you for your concerns. You understand it has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan. No reasonable person thinks it has anything to do with the Ku Klux Klan. It's a ghost on a horse. And by the way, we are the galloping ghosts. Let's talk to Joel in Cedarburg. Joel, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So I, I think the clear distinction that needs to be made here is that KKK members wear hoods, and this is a ghost, a ghost costume. Yeah. And I'm a proud graduate of Kirkconnell High School back in, well, the class of 87 is neither here nor there. But, and, and we've never ever had an issue with it. We're actually proud of, of being called the ghosts. You know, yeah. back in high school, we would uh, play our homecoming games. The opposing teams were always the Ghostbusters. So let's try to leave this one alone if yeah. we can. No, th- thanks for the call. You're, you're right. KKK, what, see, you know that he, he's, he's just right. KKK members wear hoods. This is a ghost, and everybody knows it's a ghost. And, and see, the thing that I think is the most ironic about this whole thing is the handful of students who are complaining about this, they acknowledge that it's a ghost. Right, they they acknowledge it has nothing to do with the Ku Klux Klan. They they get it. They understand all that, but they're still saying, "Well, you know, we we think this can create an unwelcoming environment for people." To which my response would be, "Who? I I mean, at some point in time, don't you have a right to like not let people be dumb?" Well, gee, I think this is an unwelcome. Now, if you're afraid of ghosts, that might be a whole different thing. Okay, I mean, if that's it, well, I'm just I'm frightened by the mascot and stuff. But to try to take they're the galloping ghosts. Everybody knows that it doesn't resemble a a knight rider, a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But somebody somewhere might look at this and think of this, and and so it would be unwelcoming. At some point in time, don't you have to say, say that's just dumb. As concerns go, that's just flat out dumb. Now, I don't know what the school board's going to do. And I understand in this woke environment now, everybody loves to clutch their pearls and wring their hands over different things. But sometimes you just have to say, thank you. We appreciate your position. Have a nice day. And this is this is one of those cases. Waterstone Bank and WTMJ Steve Scafidi are once again partnering to recognize the heroes in our community. Police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others help every day to protect our families. They're the first on the scene when critical accidents and unfortunate events occur. Do you know a first responder who deserves recognition for their duties? Then head to WTMJ.com and make your nomination now. And please hurry. The nomination period ends May 13th. It's Waterstone Bank's salute to service on News Radio WTMJ. I was talking earlier about Twitter, and, and I've I've started posting more on Twitter, and you can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 uh, all, A lot of the political stuff and things that don't necessarily, I just don't have time on the program, but I, I have thoughts about them. So I've been using that opportunity to share things on, on Twitter. And I, Saturday morning, there was a, a story that, that, that caught my attention because in the local newspaper, there was this story about how there was this protest in Madison, 
by all these people who still think that the election was was stolen and the product of a fraud. And there was this rally, and Michael Gableman was there, and he was one of the speakers at this rally. And you had um, the guy that's running against Robin Voss challenging him in the primary, who— you know, stands up and apparently the guy calls Robin Voss a treasonous traitor. Robin Voss, <laughs> you know, who, who's been, you know, he, he was one of the guys on the forefront of the Republican Revolution when Scott Walker took over. And you're a treasonous traitor, to, to which my response is, these, these people are nuts. There, there's just no way around it. If, if you think Robin Voss is a treasonous traitor, you are crazy. That's one of the definitions. So anyhow, what was missing from the local news, the story that appeared in the local newspaper, is the, the number of people that were at the event. Because normally, what, what you would see is, well, is this, is this hundreds? Is it thousands? Is it tens of thousands? I mean, how many people were there? Well, by, by the time the event started in Madison, there, there weren't tens of thousands. There weren't thousands. There, there weren't hundreds. There were actually a couple dozen people. Now, admittedly, the rain, the, the weather was, was kind of crummy on Saturday and things of like, but, but you had a few dozen people that, that were out there. I, I've got a, a link to this, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 of, of some of the pictures of a handful of people kind of like standing in, in the rain. And my question, which was somewhat rhetorical, is, you know, for everybody out there that is obsessing on the 2020 election, the question is, where do you go from here? And, and does it occur to anyone that maybe the best way to reform election law in Wisconsin is to elect a Republican governor in November, not complain about treasonous traitors or griping about Republicans in name only in April? I'm just, I mean, if, if, you've, if you are one of that handful of people who still believe the election was stolen, okay, maybe— don't you want to kind of challenge this and channel this this angst that you feel into like something that's positive there? So I posted that on Saturday. So imagine my surprise when I see an editorial in the Wash in the Wall Street Journal that appears today. Let me share it with you briefly. And again, if you're that handful of people that either agrees with, buys into the attitude that that handful of people who were standing in the rain in Madison on Saturday have, you should really, if you don't believe me, listen to what the Wall Street Journal editorial board has to say. The Republican plot to lose Wisconsin in 2022. The midterm election is approaching, but the GOP just won't give up 2020. Michael Gableman isn't a secret Democratic double agent, but he's sure acting like one. Mr. Gableman, a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, and by the way, this isn't the New York Times, this is the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Gableman, a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice, was hired by the GOP Assembly to investigate the 2020 election. Last week, he wrangled an extension. At this rate, Wisconsin Republicans might keep trying to undo the 2020 presidential result all the way to Election Day 2022 or 2024. Their priority ought to be beating Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Six months from November, his GOP challenger should be hammering COVID lockdowns and inflation. Do I think the election was rigged from the very beginning against Donald Trump? Former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish told a radio show last week. Yes, absolutely. Mr. Gableman has called on lawmakers to look at the option of decertification of the 2020 presidential elections. Page two. What option? 
Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes for President Biden were counted on January 6, 2021. There is no mechanism to nullify them. A resolution to decertify is akin to a voter shouting at the end of the bar at 2 a.m. that his 2020 ballot is hereby rescinded. Absolutely. Mr. Gableman has already issued his report, which includes both points of concern and also red herrings. And then it goes through, you know, some of that. And then it sort of says, okay, look, there, there's some concerns here, but nothing that rises to the level of of fraud. All right. Um, Republicans have valid gripes about how the 2020 election was run, but it isn't hard to figure out what flipped Wisconsin. Many voters Republicans included, didn't want four more years of Mr. Trump's antics. In some suburban wards, 10.5 percent of Mr. Biden's voters picked the GOP for Congress. This beats the evidence of vote fraud detected by everyone who has looked. Mr. Trump lost Wisconsin in 2020 on his own. And if Republicans keep chasing ghosts— There is a theme to today's program. If Republicans keep chasing ghosts, he will also help them lose in 2022. I would put this on Twitter, except it's Wall Street Journal and it's behind a paywall. But it's essentially what I've been saying for the longest time, including like last Saturday. If you want election reform in this state and if you are troubled by some of the things that happened in 2020, where you had election clerks in some of the larger cities who – interpreted or misinterpreted election law in such a way to kind of jazz turnout for Biden voters? All right. If if you're upset about that, that what you need to be doing is concentrating on 2022, not like the Wall Street Journal says, pretending to be like the drunk at the end of the bar at two o'clock in the morning saying, I want to I want to take back my vote or, you know, I, we, we've got to decertify the election. Not going to happen. It's kooky talk. So don't you have to move on or else what you find is, you know, if it's the ghost of 2020 comes back and haunts the 2022 election, I, I think we're going to know who to blame. All right. When we come back, talk about ghosts. Well, 19, the 1970s are calling and they want their inflation back. Stick around. Boy, I, I wish I had better economic news. The stock market... First day in May of trading is in the tank again, down 300 points. That's the Dow, the NASDAQ down like some 80 points or so. Now, this is after April, which was the worst month for the stock market since the the pandemic hit in 2020. Um, On top of that, you've got inflation, which is just running amok, 8.5% inflation rate, the highest in, in 40 years. And at this point in time, I don't think anybody has any confidence in the government's ability to to deal with inflation. That is the the macro issue. And I say that because if you look at the way, for example, the Biden administration has dealt with the economy over the last year and a half, you can argue that they did pretty much everything everything wrong, you know, putting almost $2 trillion into an economy that was already constrained because of supply, sending out checks, paying people not to work, letting tenants live rent-free, delaying student loan payments, squeezing oil and gas production. I could go on and on and on, but, but you get the idea. And now we're seeing inflation running amok, and we're seeing, as a result of that, investors you know, bailing on 
on companies' earnings being challenged, et cetera. And, of course, then you've got the other matters, including, you know, the war in Ukraine, which isn't helping, and things like that. But you, you've got all these things that are going on in the world. And then in this country, you've got a government that I think has done pretty much everything wrong when it comes with dealing the, with the economy. And now you're, you're seeing this. And for people who say, well, you know, what do you care about the stock market and things like that? Well, for everybody who's in retirement or close to retirement or trying to save for retirement, yeah, watching the stock market drop dramatically without any idea of when it is going to be rebounding, that is a very, very traumatic thing. That is the macro issue going on with the economy. There is the micro issue as well. And I, I want to revisit this because we talk about this from time to time because when you talk about the, these bigger concepts, oh, gee, you know, we've got inflation at, an all time, at a 40-year high of 8.5%. You've got the stock market, which is going down and down and down. Okay, all, all those things are fine, but they're, they're kind of ideas and they're conceptual. The other impact of what is going on is what is happening when average people, real people, people like you and me, we go out to the grocery store, we go out to restaurants, we go, I don't know, you know, wherever we do, and we see what is happening with prices. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand there's some people who are saying there's nothing to see here. The economy is booming. All things are just all great. Well, my guess is most people that are saying that you know, aren't going to the grocery store, aren't going to the gas station, aren't buying you know, goods and services, because if they were, they'd understand that this is not a good time. 855-616-1620, what has been your aha moment? We did a segment like this several weeks ago, but for, for people who haven't had that aha, aha moment, at least hadn't had it a few weeks ago, my guess is you've had it now. What is your aha moment when you said, oh my gosh, this, this inflation thing is, is real? And of course, it has different impacts on, on different people. If you have some savings, if you've got a solid job or things, well, the fact that your groceries might have gone up $100 in a given week is something you don't like, but maybe you're able to afford it. The bigger problem, though, is for people who are on a fixed income or people who don't have the wherewithal that when you find, gee, I, I need, I, it's going to cost me $100 more to get my groceries to feed my family, then you have to start making some tough decisions about, well, all right, are we going to change what we're buying at the grocery store or are we going to give up other things? Your aha moment on inflation, 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Here's one of our texters. Stock market? Yeah, I'm worried. I've lost what equals one year's pay. I retired in January. I'm worried sick about inflation. You know, it, it, you've got inflation and you've got the stock market that, that's just cratering right now. Uh, about a week or so ago, I was at one of my favorite watering holes and I was talking to the bartender. And you know, we were having, and, and he said, look, his plan had been that he intended to retire a year from August. And, and his plan was he has a little piece of land down in southwest Florida and wants to you know, put a trailer on there and live there. That, that was it. He said what, what's going on, though, is he's watched his retirement savings just go down and down and down. There's no idea when it's going to come back, much less costs going up and up and up. For anybody who says this isn't a, a big deal, 
Well, I, I think, you know, you've, I've got some news for you. Jeff, my wife and I normally try to go out at least once or twice a week to help out the local restaurants coming out of COVID. We've stopped eating out because the price of everything is just simply ridiculous. So unfortunately, if people keep thinking like I do, you're going to see more restaurants close. Jeff, um, my aha moment wasn't until yesterday. I went to a movie and a medium soda was six fifty. I'm single, I'm a senior, so I don't have huge grocery bills. I've obviously noticed the increase, but it wasn't until yesterday that I was shocked by it. Um, Jeff, my aha moment came a couple weeks ago when I shopped for my elderly parents. They both have health issues and have to drink Ensure liquid supplements. Yeah, those are not good. (laughs) I have previously paid around $22 a box, and in a few weeks, they went up to $32 a box. My parents are on a fixed income, and I honestly couldn't believe the price hike. It's absolutely out of control. Jeff, my kids' granola bars went from $6.59 to $8.59 in one week. $2 price increase for a box of 12 granola bars. It's absolutely insane. Jeff, my inflation moment. I buy cases of Mountain Dew for my neighbor when I go shopping. About a year ago, it was $7 per case, but most of the time there was a special, so I got it for $6 a case. Now they're $9 per case, and you can't find any specials at all. Um, Jeff, my wife and I also had our last dinner out last Friday. Reality is we just cannot afford it anymore. Jeff, my aha moment was my eight ounce certified Kobe beef filet now was $143. Now it's $164. Yeah. So you're getting the, and again, that's somebody I think being a little bit facetious. And if you've got the money to fade it out, there's no problem with that at all. But the truth is a lot of people don't have it and it's hitting people on a really on a personal level. I've told this story before. My aha moment was going through the McDonald's drive-thru and I don't do this hard. Hardly at all. My wife is listening. Almost never. But a few weeks ago, I, I don't know. I think maybe she was going out for dinner or something. It was after work. I just decided I'm going to run through. I'm going to get. I'm going to get myself one of their you know extra value meals. And I put that in quotation marks. So I order a quarter pounder with cheese with the French fries and the soda. All right. Now it's been a while since I'd been there, but I'm thinking ah six bucks six fifty nine dollars and ten cents nine dollars and ten cents, and I'm thinking how does you know how does a family you know husband wife and like three kids coming back from the soccer game how, how do you afford it you do that and you're you're looking at thirty forty fifty bucks to go through the lines, and so I understand that you know people. People are like, okay, well, you know, it's no big deal. At least those are the people that are sticking their heads in the sand and trying to say, okay, well, you know, we shouldn't be upset with this or people are overreacting. Nuts to that. This is a very, very real issue. Back with more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Hey, this announcement out of Green Bay is, is really a big deal. Um... This summer, I think it was the date, July 23rd, Lambeau Field is going to host an exhibition match between two of the premier teams in in the world. Bayern Munich is the—they're sort of like the 1920s New York Yankees when it comes to German football. They they win— Every year in the, what do they call it, the Bundesliga. So Bayern Munich, a, a big team. Manchester City plays in the English Premier League. And they're, um, they, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, of the English Premier League. My, my team is Liverpool. And Liverpool and Manchester City are always 
competing for the, the top. So as much as it pains me to say this, it's true. Manchester City is arguably one of the top two or three teams, I think, in the world, along with Liverpool and, and arguably along with Bayern Munich. So th- this is a big deal that you have those two teams coming to you know Green Bay to play at historic Lambeau Field. In, in, uh, admittedly, it's an exhibition game. The European soccer season start in, in August. But still, you know, pretty cool for people who are, are fans of European football to see these two teams. So I, I think it, it's just a great get for, you know, the, the folks up at Lambeau Field. And it certainly sounds like something that would be a very, very fun evening. Okay, this is, is not a, a fun topic, but I, I guess my response would be, all right, a good start, but it needs to be more. As Jane was mentioning during her news, uh, yesterday was the first day that the Milwaukee Police Department started enforcing new authority that the Fire and Police Commission, by a five-to-one vote, had, had given them. And that was the authority to tow cars that had been involved in reckless driving if. So, I mean, here, here's the deal. First of all, the car has to be unregistered, Okay. If it is unregistered and the vehicle is doing one of the following, it can be towed. Driving recklessly, speeding in excess of 25 miles an hour, fleeing an officer, or drag racing. So those are the conditions. In that case, officers can just tow the car on the spot. Now, I have been a huge advocate of trying to get tough on, on reckless driving. There's a story in the New York Times today. Again, just I, I shake my head about it. It's talking about how New York City is not different from Milwaukee in that you know that they have the same problem with reckless driving that we have. Their response is they're spending all this money to put up billboards. Put up billboards um, that are kind of like the scared straight things that they used to do with the cigarette ads, you know, where they'd have the ad of the woman who, you know, said that she'd smoked for 30 years and then they'd show her in the hospital gown with, you know, half of her throat off and stuff like that. So they're, they're going to put up billboards to try to scare people out of reckless driving. I, I have nothing against billboards, but at the same time, it seems to me that you need to be more definitive. What did we do? We, we talked yesterday on, on the program on Friday, that is, about the guy who'd been arrested 35 times for reckless driving and, and just sent on his way. So I don't have a problem with seizing cars under certain circumstances, and I think they've already seized seven. There's one member of the Fire and Police Commission who didn't vote for this who says, well, I, I'm just I'm concerned about the disruption that this gives to people's lives, to which my response would be, well, okay, driving an unregistered car, blowing through a red light, or fleeing cops, you know, that that has the risk of killing all sorts of people. So, yes, it might inconvenience you if your car is stolen, but there's an easy alternative. Don't blow through red lights. Don't drive 40 miles an hour over the speed limit. Keep your car registered, and you won't have a problem. But here's where I want to discuss this. So the officials are saying, okay, we're starting to to tow cars, which I think is, is a good first step. My point, though, would be, why are we just taking a, a baby step? Now, again, I don't have a problem with, you know, towing cars under these circumstances. All right, don't have a problem with that. But my question is, you know, why, why are we taking half measures? 
Why, for example, are we only towing cars where there's reckless driving, speeding above 25 miles an hour um, limit, fleeing police or racing, and we're only towing unregistered cars? What about... What about situations where, as often has the, happens, you, you catch somebody, you know, they're driving and they, they don't have a driver's license, no valid driver's license, no registration, um, no insurance. What about expanding this concept to say, look, you know, if, if you're driving, particularly you're driving without a driver's license or you're driving on an expired license, boom, we're, we're seizing the car. And the way this works is in order to get the car back, you have to present a valid driver's license, proof of registration, proof of insurance, and pay all associated fees. All right. And for people who say, well, that's not fair. What if I what if I lend my brother-in-law my car and, you know, he gets caught driving 35 miles an hour and doesn't have any uh, – doesn't have a valid license? Is it fair to take my car? And actually the police chief says if you're loaning your car out – you got a responsibility to know your, who you're loaning your car out to. And, and yeah, you know, if that happens, your car gets towed because, you know, your no good brother-in-law doesn't have a driver's license or whatever. Yeah, you're going to have to go down. You're going to have to pay fines and you're going to have to pay to get your car back. Too bad. So sad. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am not critical of this initiative. My point, though, is I would like to see it expanded. I think if you are driving without a valid driver's license, you get stopped. I think, you know, you should be sent on your way on foot, and I think your car should be towed. 855-616-1620. Will it stop everybody from driving in that fashion? No, because I understand that a lot of people that are driving without licenses and without registrations have stolen the cars. I mean, I I get it. So I'm not saying that this is the, the magic bullet that stops all of this, but Seriously, if you're driving without a driver's license or an expired license or whatever, what's wrong with taking the car? 855-616-1620, we discuss. If you haven't seen this story, I mean, another day, another person dead because of reckless driving. Yesterday afternoon, shortly after 1 p.m., North 20th Street, West Burleigh, a car blows through a red light, was struck by another vehicle. The impact of the collision caused the vehicle that had run the red light to strike a pedestrian who was on the corner of the intersection. The pedestrian, 72 years old, um, was transported to the hospital where, where he died. Turns out it was the guy was a former Vietnam veteran, etc. But another one of these deals, car blows through a red light, ends up getting hit by somebody who's got the right of way. Both cars spin out. In this case, they hit a pedestrian who's on the sidewalk. He ends up dead. And, and again, we don't know the background of the guy that blew the red light. But, you know, what's the over-under that that this was somebody who had a a history of doing this sort of stuff? So in Milwaukee, we've now started seizing the cars. And I'm I'm all in favor of this. Car has to be unregistered and reckless driving or driving more than 25 miles an hour over the speed limit or fleeing from police. But my question is, why are we stopping with that? We've got all these people that are out there who are driving when they should not be driving. My point would be, anytime you get stopped— under these conditions, or probably any condition, where you do not have a valid driver's license, your driver's license is suspended or never issued or whatever, why are we letting you drive away? 
Shouldn't that car just be towed and transported down to the lot where it is then held until such a time as you can come in and demonstrate that, well, you've got your license, you've got your insurance, the car is properly registered? Why is that so much to ask? 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, you're exactly right. It's way past time to enforce the laws across the board pertaining to registration, insurance, and reckless driving in Milwaukee. Uh, yeah, I, it seems to me that that's the case. Joe in West Bend. Joe, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Sure. <clears throat> so I, I was just going to point out that I, I don't see why this is somehow perceived as an extreme measure by some people, especially this, was it a commissioner who voted it down? I had an example where a friend of mine, I borrowed a vehicle to them and they illegally parked it. And they got towed and impounded, and I got a letter in the mail because it wasn't the greatest friend in the world, but I had to go and get it uh, paid for to uh, get my possession back, you know? So, I mean, when you compare that to reckless driving and things, I mean, if they're going to do this for, are they going to change the laws now and say if you illegally park, you won't be towed? I mean, this... This is ridiculous. Yeah, there is this irony that if you're if you accumulate too many parking tickets, your car will be impounded. But if you get stopped driving over like the thirtieth time without a driver's license, they send you on your way. Doesn't make much sense, does it? <laughs> no, no that, if yeah. you can be if my vehicle that I borrowed to someone could be towed, I lose the car. Yep. No, I'm with you. No, thanks. It's an extreme measure if they use it to do something dangerous to uh, get towed as well. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. See, I think, I, I, look, and a number of people are making this point on our text line. You're absolutely correct. Driving is a privilege. It is not a right. Now, I, as I, I understand, not being with a car, being without a car is a big deal. This is one of the reasons why I carry on so much about the, the out-of-control car theft in the city of Milwaukee, because you come out and you find your car gone. That is a huge, huge hassle. Even if you've got insurance, trying to wait for this to be processed and figuring out how you're going to get your car fixed or how you're going to get a new car and wait, it is an enormous hassle, not to mention a a violation of your personal space and all that. That's why I think it's such a big deal. Well, okay, if that's a big deal, isn't it also just as big a deal when you have people who are driving in irresponsible fashion, whether it's their car or someone else? Why do they just get to walk away or, in this case, drive away? So, yeah, we, we've got to – if we're not going to put these people in jail – now, that's my other option, but uh, you get a lot of people who clutch their pearls and wrings their hands about that. Oh, we, we can't put people in jail for doing this type of stuff? Well, my question is why not? But at the very least – can't we can't we take the cars? And, and yes, you will get some what we used to call innocent owners who get caught up in this. But it'll at least make people think twice, maybe, like I say, before they lend their car keys to the brother-in-law that you know doesn't have a license. Yeah, hey, here, you can you can take my car. Yeah. And, and yes, it's going to inconvenience you when, you know, you know, your brother-in-law, you know, Frank, goes out and blows through the red light, and then it turns out that he's got a suspended driver's license or whatever, and then you're the one that's got to go down and pay the fines to get your car back. Maybe it'll make you think twice before you lend him that car the next time. And if it is one of the people who are driving without the license in the first place, okay, well, at least if you take a car away, you make it more difficult for them to get back behind the wheel. Let's talk to John. John, you're on WTMJ. 
I yeah, well, um, you're exactly right. Um, I ought to have a right. I do everything legally. I got driver's license. I have insurance. I got registration. If I got to have mine, they got to have theirs too. They're driving, and the guy that, the one that 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 voted against this, I like to know who he is. You ain't got to tell me, but at some point, I'll never vote for him because yeah. he don't care about our city being. You know, if they would have been doing this from the very beginning, they let it got too far. Yeah. It's out of hand. I'm I'm born here in Milwaukee. I know we used to sleep on the porch. You know, there was none of that. So it, it, we just let it get out of hand. Yes. You yep. gotta, you have to stop these drivers from erratical driving, uh, 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 registered mm-hmm. cars. It's against the law to have an unregistered car. Yep. <laughs> we can't be soft on these people. You know, yeah. you take the car. That's, that is against the law to not have no insurance. John, yeah, I mean, John, from your from your lips to God's ears, yeah, I mean, right. What what's so hard about this? You're not supposed to drive without a driver's license. You get caught driving without a driver's license. Yeah, you, yeah, it, it right. No, th- th- yeah, yeah. no, and I appreciate what you're saying, John. Thanks for calling because you're absolutely right. We let it get out of control, and, and but this is still the attitude. Okay, well, John wants me to name names. I have no problem naming names. Okay, um, five to one vote by the Fire and Police Commission. Now these are all appointed by the mayor and confirmed by the Common Council. So the lone vote in opposition came from Commissioner Amanda Avalos, who argued that the measure does nothing to address root causes of reckless driving. Oh, my God. And it would have a disparate effect on certain communities in, in Milwaukee. Okay, it does nothing to address root causes of reckless driving. Admittedly, you, you can do all you want to talk about root causes, and that's fine. Come up with all the billboards and the driver's ed you want. But in the meantime, I want the people that are driving 35 miles an hour um, over the speed limit or blowing through red lights or fleeing from the cops. I don't want them. I don't care why they're doing it. I don't want them to be able to continue doing it. Root causes. It would have disparate effects on certain communities in Milwaukee. All right. Here, here's the here's the, the lie to that. The the, the real disparate impact on communities in Milwaukee is the communities are the communities where this is going on. The people like John is talking about, you live in a particular neighborhood where the reckless driving, where all this stuff is out of control. You are the ones that are being victimized, you know, disproportionately. So, you know, you're the people that one o'clock in the afternoon, you're standing on a street corner and you get somebody that blows through a red light, ends up getting hit by another car, and then you've got a pedestrian that's dead. That's what the disparate impact is. This idea that some people have that we're doing folks favors in areas where there's high crime or there's a high incidence of reckless driving. We're doing people favors by allowing people to continue to do that. That that attitude, what arrogance that we're going to come down on the side of the bad guys. We're going to come down on the side of the people who are doing the illegal actions instead of the decent people who are worried that I might be standing on a street corner waiting to cross when all of a sudden somebody blows through a, a light at 35 miles an hour over the speed limit or, or whatever. But we're going to worry about the driver who's driving recklessly, not the person who might end up dead on the streets. I mean, give me a break. Bob, Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, yeah. John, John couldn't be more right. Uh, I, I, I recently, well, not recently, but I responded to your station uh, I had won a prize, and I thought, I'll just take Capitol Drive back west to Waukesha. And and I got about two miles west of your station, 
And I thought, my goodness gracious, you have made, I was on a motorcycle. I made a horrific mistake. This is nutty. Uh, and, and if you stop at any traffic light, any traffic light, look at the tags. How many are expired? Why are they expired? No insurance, no driver license, no, it, it's just crazy. Yeah, so it, it thank is. goodness for John. And I agree. No, no, thanks to call, Bob. Well, you know, I, there are, and I, I've said this before, and I, I'm not, I'm just telling you what I do. There are, I grew up here, right? I grew up in Glendale. And there, I used to regularly travel city streets. If I was, for example, leaving the, the east side to drive out to Waukesha or Pewaukee or whatever, I, I would... As an alternative to taking the freeway, I I would drive city streets. There are city streets that I will not go on, period. I I just – I flat out won't, and Capitol Drive is is one of them. Our studios are in Capitol and Humboldt, and there's two ways to go. The shortest way is to go west on Capitol and and get on the freeway, and then I go north to where I live. I do not go that short route because you always feel like you're taking your life into your own hands. Even that like one and a half mile stretch, you'll see cars on a regular basis blowing through red lights. And you are exactly right, Bob. You stop at the red lights and there's cars without license plates on them, um, expired tags or whatever. And it, it's almost like every time when you do do that route and you end up then heading north, you go, Phew, I, I dodged a bullet. I can't tell you how many people I know, whether it's colleagues or friends, who've gotten involved in in collisions through no fault of their own and stuff like that. They've got to take back the streets, period. And I think towing these cars is a start, but it is only a start. Next, I would again expand it to people who are driving without licenses. If you get caught driving without a license, you shouldn't just get a ticket that you can crumple up, throw in your back seat, and not pay. What you should do is be taken out of the car and then told to call your friends to come pick you up because you shouldn't be driving without a license. There are almost 650,000 people whose lives are touched by the Wisconsin Retirement System, which covers employees of the UW system, local police, firefighters, and publicly employed teachers. Join Annex Wealth Management and WTMJ Steve Scafidi for a special webinar, Understand Your WRS Potential, on Wednesday, May 18th at 4 p.m. Retirement planning can be complex. What does your most recent statement mean for your plan? No matter your age or retirement status, learn more as we walk through pension scenarios and answer WRS questions. Register for the free webinar at AnnexWealth.com slash events. All right. I understand. Let me just say this at the beginning. I understand that we in this country have, have an interest in making sure that our elections aren't gamed by outside countries. For example, Russia trying to, you know, meddle in our elections by promoting disinformation and things like that. You know, fake fake stuff which they post on the internet play, claiming to be US citizens in an effort to try to cause people to vote for one candidate after another. I understand that that there is an interest in trying to identify that. At the same time, I think we also have this thing in this country called free speech. And under the guise of trying to root out false information, I think we need to be really, really careful when it comes to having the government in particular decide 
<clears throat> what information you can hear and what information you, you can't hear. And, and I, I understand that, you know, the government um, in, in many cases doesn't like some of the information that's out there. And I understand that, you know, you have the war on the news media saying it, it's fake news. And I understand that the, the blowback is, well, you know, you, you have to be able to, you know, trust sources and things like that. But But the truth is, it, it, it's hard. So what, what is something that's absolutely true? Yeah, I understand when you say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's true. But when you are dealing with a complex issue, for example, causes of this, causes of that, etc., and it overlaps into people's opinions, I don't want to say under the guise of, well, we're trying to prevent false information. I don't want to prevent people from being able to express themselves. And I especially don't want the government doing that because that's what they do in Russia. And that's what they did in Nazi Germany. And that's what they do in China. And that's what historically they have done in totalitarian regimes where we don't want you criticizing the government. What the government tells you is true. And if you say something other than that, well, we're going to take you off the streets. We're going to put you in the gulag, which brings me to the Biden Disinformation Governance Board. The Department of Homeland Security on Thursday announced the formation of the Disinformation Governance Board, DGB, which, according to the the head of Homeland Security, is going to be charged with countering misinformation related to homeland security, focused specifically on irregular migration and Russia. The stated goal of combating misinformation and disinformation, they, they frame it to say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're going to come down on the side of truth, which nobody can object to. The problem is, who gets to be the, the truth experts? So I, I understand this, this idea that we want to stop Russia from meddling in our elections. But it's homeland security. So let's say you've got Joe Biden's Department of Homeland Security that doesn't like the fact that there are lots of us who believe that the border is out of control. So in the guise of preventing misinformation— Are we now going to crack down on U.S. citizens that prohibit people from, I don't know, raising questions about border security or the number of people who are coming across or what is going on? Are we we now going to say the government is going to prevent people from doing that through the Departments of Homeland Security and the Disinformation govern disinformation governance board, and for everybody who thinks that that might be a great thing because Joe Biden is president, how would you have felt if Donald Trump, two years ago, had announced that the Department of Homeland Security was going to be forming its own disinformation governance board? Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I'm sorry, but I I think this is and should be a complete and total non-starter. Now, if you believe that you've got a foreign government that is meddling in our elections, that, that's, that's fine. But th- this idea that we're going to be looking at what people say and we're going to be using the government to control what we feel is inaccurate about what people are saying about the border or whatever— I'm sorry. I just think that that is scary as heck. 855-616-1620. And I would think that everybody on the left and the right 
should be really, really scared about that. Let's start with Maggie in Milwaukee. Maggie, you're first. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? So I actually would like to offer somewhat of an analogy for how do we approach this problem, right? Most people are familiar with the construction that free speech has limits. And for example, um, you can't walk into a crowded theater and scream fire. And I think many people would look at what's happening, particularly online and in social media, and agree that we do have a bit of a, 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 a situation that has to be addressed. And the question is, how? I do believe that content-based um, discrimination over, over what gets said or not said is an incorrect role for government. Um, and that's, that's an old principle, you know, and, and you're a lawyer, you understand that. And so really, what is creating this exigency or this concern right now? And I think it's what are the algorithms promoting in terms of speech? And the algorithms right now are promoting profit-making speech or speech that um, induces clicking. And I think one potential avenue for whether it's the government or the private owners of these uh, platforms that create so much vastly disseminated speech is not, is it accurate or inaccurate, but perhaps looking at what the algorithms um, promote. Um, and that might be a way to not have government in the business of choosing, you get to say this, yeah. but not that, is inherently problematic. But looking at the source of the problem, which is speech for profit-making purposes, which will promote speech that is inaccurate, um, divisive, and all of those other things, which, listen, people have a right to say inaccurate things. Yes. The question is, when that speech is elevated above other speech, in a way that continues to promote um, negative impact on our government and our uh, and on our democracy. And I think the key may be looking at those algorithms. Yeah, thanks much. No, thanks. That's an interesting concept. And and I guess I'm I am uncomfortable with the government limiting space speech. Now I understand there's a huge controversy now with Facebook and Twitter and things like that and the algorithms that you're talking about and and are they overly restrained or whatever. But at least in that case, it it's it, it's the private companies that are responding to, you know, pressures and concerns and, and things like that. It, it's that. That's one thing. It's another thing when you actually have a government agency which is is tasked with um, the, the idea of trying to assess, you know, what information you can hear and and what you can't hear. Now, look, I understand that there are there are are noble goals to this. I mean, you know, one of the examples, I'm looking at a story in the Washington Post and says, okay, well, like, here's like one of the goals, like like human smuggling organizations peddling misinformation to exploit vulnerable migrants for for profits. Okay, I get that. All right, that's fine. Monitoring messages from terrorists and extremist groups, no problem with that at all. Okay, that's fine. But, But if you're going to go down this route, it needs to be extremely, at least in my opinion, extremely limited because I don't want to see this in a situation. And again, I I don't care who the president is. I don't want the government now in a position where it is going to view your tweet or my tweet or your Facebook post, I'm not on Facebook, or your email or whatever that ends up getting disseminated and decide, is this accurate or or not? If you've, 
if you've posted a, something saying that, hey, you, you just had your, I'm using an example, you've had your COVID booster and you got sick and you would not recommend anybody else having that. I'm just, again, using that as an example. If you post that, I don't want the government coming down and saying you are promoting misinformation because the CDC says that these are safe. So if you're telling your story, you, you can't do it. I don't want the government having the ability to restrict you in that fashion. I don't want, if you live in Tucson, Arizona, on the border, and you want to post I don't know, something that talks about how I woke up this morning and I found 25 people who were illegally into this country who came in and they're sleeping in my backyard. I don't want the government to be able to say you are promoting misinformation about our ability to control what is going on in the border. That's not what the government's role is. And so maybe it's algorithm algorithms like Maggie was talking about. You know, maybe it's more aggressive use of of libel law or um, or defamation law or something like that, but but whatever it is, should it be the government that that sets this up? So if you're saying to me, gee, a government agency that's out there looking at whether or not Russia has a bunch of people that are sitting in Crimea in a bunch of basements who are trying to you know pose as Americans posting false stuff on our internet, okay, that that's one thing. But that's not what that's not exactly where this is limited. So if you want to go down this route, it's something it seems to me you go down after having a lengthy conversation, not just Joe Biden snapping his fingers and saying, I'm going to put this particular person in charge of this. It's rather we're going to have a conversation and we're going to bring Congress into this and we're going to decide exactly what it is that we are trying to accomplish. And we're going to put in all sorts of limits on this because otherwise you are looking at a ministry of truth, kind of like the old KGB, kind of like what goes on in in China. And I don't think you want to have that happen in the United States. Yeah, I think people get it. Jeff, the Ministry of Truth has deemed you as a purveyor of misinformation. Please remove yourself from the air. Well, no, that, that, that would be the question of we're going to go to your your bosses and we're going to say he cannot. We don't care about the ratings, don't care about the revenue. He can't be on the air because he's a purveyor of truth. Jeff, funny how DGB and KGB are so similar. It, it is. Let me, let me give you an example of, of this and, and where this can go. All right, there, COVID is and our reaction to it is is a very controversial thing. Some people think that we overreacted to it. Some people think that we underreacted to it. Well, okay, here's the headline in the Wall Street Journal from yesterday. COVID-19 cases rise in the U.S., but with limited impact. Hospitalizations are increasing, but comparatively few severe cases or fresh mitigation efforts. And then it talks about how, okay, yes, you've got these new variants that are coming through the country, but um, the latest increase hasn't sparked a commensurate surge in severe illness. Okay, so that, that that's what the numbers are. So you can look at that. And, and my question is, what what is the, the truth of that? Okay, some people might say, well, this is why, this is the justification. We need to go back to, like, full lockdowns, and we need to go back to mask rules, and we need to go back to all this stuff because the the number of COVID cases are increasing. Other people might look at this story and say, look, we we have— we have to figure out how to live with COVID. COVID is not going to go away. And yes, you're always going to have these variants that are out there. But the truth of the matter is, 
pretty much everybody, except for small children, have the option to get vaccinated. And yes, even if you get vaccinated, it doesn't guarantee that you're not going to get COVID, but it pretty much guarantees that you're not going to be need to be hospitalized. It's not, it can happen in rare cases. So what is the conclusion that you draw from this? That, oh, we've got this variant that's coming back. We need to go back to lockdowns. Is that the truth? Or is the truth that, well, okay, more and more people are getting it, but you know, 70% of the population has had it in some form or the another, and it appears that if you get it again, it's going to be a milder version. So what, what, is, the, what is the truth there? How, how do you have these arguments? And do you want the government deciding what the truth is? Now, like I say, if, if the function of the KGB or the DGB or whatever is to try to identify, I don't know, people who are trafficking in illegals and, and try to identify like false stuff they're putting out on the Internet— all right, that, that's a specific law enforcement mission. I, I get it. If the intent is to try to identify foreign nationals who are trying to illegally participate in U.S. elections, that's a specific thing. But if in the course of that— we are going to start talking about, I don't know, U.S. citizens who are expressing opinions on things that may differ from the conventional wisdom or might differ from what the government wants you to believe. I, that's, that's a scary sort of thing because we, we have, under the First Amendment in this country, we have the right to be wrong. We, 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 we do. We have the right to express our opinions on issues and argue things. And, and yes, we, we could be wrong about something, but you have the right to do that. And that's what living in a free country allows you to do. It allows you to argue even when you're wrong. And it allows you to, I don't know, um, argue when you're right. And I don't want the government making these sort of decisions under the justification that, well, you know, we've got people that are, you know, um, we've got people that are portraying false information with regard to trying to aid and abet, you know, people smuggling people, you know, into the country. Okay, I understand that. But the precedent and the slope that you start sliding down to is really, really scary. Okay, when we come back, does anybody care what Donald Trump thinks? What do the polls say? And, all right, is it his own fault? Stick around. All that's coming up. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. There was a story on Fox News. Yes, I know, Fox News. That, that caught my attention because it parallels something that's going on in Wisconsin, and it's actually going to be a case that's going to be heard and argued in front of the state Supreme Court sometime this spring. I don't think the oral argument has been set, but it involves a, a Florida mom who she's filed a lawsuit against the school district because because here's what happened. Um, there's she's got a she's got a daughter who was 13 years old at the time, and apparently um, there was a a group of friends, and they were getting together after school, and in this group of friends, a handful of them announced that they, were, they weren't they were really girls, they were boys, and they wanted to transition, okay? So that they, they announced this. Mom doesn't know anything about it. And, 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 and by the way, 
as will become clear, I, I don't care about that stuff. I mean, I, I have no issue. There, there are definitely a percentage of people who are, I don't know, men trapped in female bodies or you know, females trapped in male bodies. And I, I'm not sure it's really a, as many people as, as you'd get the idea if you, you know, read about stuff and hear about stuff. But regardless, I, I understand that can happen. So anyhow, what happens is this, this 13-year-old apparently decides that, that she's really a boy, not a girl, and she wants to transition. So she, together with a couple of her uh, friends who are either preteen or 13, um, they, they tell that to the school. So the school begins working on a transgender support plan, okay? Transgender support plan, figuring out, you know, how they're going to help her with this. Oh, okay, fine. The thing is, the school refuses to tell mom and dad about it, refuses to tell the parents that they are, they are doing this. And the parents only find out like indirectly, maybe because their daughter says something to them or whatever. So then they say, eventually, we did see the transgender support plan, which was a six-page document that they completed with my daughter that was 13 at the time behind closed doors, where they asked her questions that she would, would have absolutely impacted her safety, such as which restroom she preferred to use, which sex she preferred to room with on overnight trips, et cetera, et cetera. And and, of course, the, the thing is, this isn't done in consultation with the parents. This isn't like you have like mom and dad who, in consultation with the daughter, you know, decide, okay, well, we're going to help you with the transition, and they go to the school officials, and they start talking about it. This is something that the school did behind the back of, of the parents. Now, you might remember this because it might sound familiar because there is a lawsuit right now that is, again, was brought against the Madison School District, like I say, that's going to be argued in, in the spring. And the Madison School District has what they call guidance, and, and they've issued this a couple years ago. Here's a couple provisions of their guidance and policies to support transgender, non-binary, and gender-expansive students. Okay, The policy includes the following provision. Children of any age can transition to a different gender identity at school by changing their names and pronouns without parental notice or consent. Let me just let that linger in the air. Children of any age can transition to a different gender identity at school by changing their name and pronouns without parental notice or consent. District employees are prohibited from notifying parents without the child's consent that the child has or wants to change gender identity at school or that their child may be dealing with gender issues. So the kid can make any decision they want, and the school officials cannot communicate that. First of all, they must do what the kid wants to do, and then they cannot communicate this to the parents. District employees are even instructed to deceive parents by using the child's legal name and pronouns with family while using different names and pronouns adopted by the child in the school setting. So in other words, you, you come to... I don't know, you're, you're going to your fourth grade kid's uh, parent-teacher conference. And even though the school and the teacher 
refers to your female student as Roy in class, you know, when when they're talking to the the parents, they pretend that that's not happening. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't care, as I said at the start of this, I, I don't care what gender, you know, if you've got if you've got a child that, you know, is looking at changing their gender or whatever, I, that that's fine. To me, that's between your your child and and you, the parents and doctors or, or whoever. That that's okay. But this idea that apparently is pervasive now that the schools can do this stuff without consultation and notification of the parents and can actually go as far as to deceive the parents. This is why there are so many people who think the educational system is completely and totally broken. If mom and dad, you know, are are dealing with a a high school student, for example, that, you know, wants to make this transition, and mom and dad decide that that this is the right thing to do, and mom and dad working with the schools want to say, okay, this is how we want our child treated and all, I have no problem with that. I, I don't. But to do this behind the back of the parents and consider apparently doing this even, we're not talking necessarily about high school kids. You know, we're talking about kids 10, 11, 12. That's just in what world could this be correct? 855-616-1620. And if public educators wonder why they are held in such low regard by such a, a large number of the population, it's stuff like this. Last time I checked, parents were responsible for the upbringing of their kids. It's one thing if the school doesn't want to get on board and help out. It's another thing if the school is actively working behind the back of the parents to create a situation or a result that the parents wouldn't agree to under any circumstance. 855-616-1620, we discuss. So one of our texters says, well, well, Jeff, don't you understand the school may be more sympathetic to somebody, some child wanting to be transgender than the parents would be. So so why would we, we do that? Well, okay, maybe it's because the parents don't think that their 11-year-old is mature enough or grounded enough to make the decision as to whether they're, they're really a boy trapped in a girl's body or, or vice versa. But, but it, I mean, it's, it's a conversation maybe that you end up having, but this idea that the school will actively grant the 11- or 12-year-old's request and then actively deceive the parents uh, about this, that, that is just absolutely appalling to me, unless the school is going to take the complete and total responsibility for raising the child. Now, in extreme cases, a situation where you have, I don't know, abuse of a child or something, there's all sorts of provisions there where the school can go to the court system and and you can have things done that deal with it. But, But this but this isn't even talking about this. This is just the school saying, oh, we've got a 10-year-old that's come in here, and the 10-year-old um, and her and a couple of her friends have all decided, oh, they got together over the summer, and they have all decided that they identify as boys instead of girls. So here, we're, we're not going to tell the parents, and we're just going to go along with this. Th- that's just it, – it's, it's nuts. 
There's no other way to describe it. And yet that's what that's the way the system operates in many of these cases. The parents are the parents certainly have a right to know. If there is concern that there may be some degree of abuse going on at home, like I say, you, you can go to the courts, you can call in the social workers, you can bring in the child and protect need of protective services things and, and deal with that. But that's not the majority of the situation. And and yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe the parents aren't going to be as I don't know, enlightened about the kid, their 11-year-old saying, well, I, I, I now, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be Larry anymore. I now want to be Louise. Yeah, well, maybe the parents might have something to say about that, but shouldn't the parents have something to say about it? Do you simply say, well, we're going to allow the kids to make that decision? You don't allow a 12-year-old, you know, we, we don't allow 12-year-olds to decide um, all sorts of other decisions that they, they make. Um, you know, we have to have the per- – you can't get a tattoo before you're 18 unless mom and dad sign off on it. But you can go to the school system and say that you're changing your gender? Huh? Let's talk to Tom in Heartland. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Let's, let's look at – let's back up here two or three decades when parents started – or even longer, when parents started to turn over the responsibility – their responsibilities over to the schools themselves. I want you to feed my kids. I want you to make sure my kid's doing his homework. Things like that. Parents are the root of it. I do not disagree. Are the root of parenting, but they've turned over responsibilities to the schools. They need to pull it all back and start parenting the proper way and not allowing the schools to make decisions that the parents should have been making on a lot of other things also. Yeah, I no, thank, thanks so, for, no, I kind of gone down this no, I get it. No, thanks for call, Tom. I, I get what you're, you're talking about. Here's one of my texts here. Some kids are afraid to tell their parents how they feel because they fear their parents will react negatively. That's why the school doesn't notify the parents. Well, maybe maybe the negative reaction is the appropriate thing. Gee, okay, let, let, let's move from the transgender thing. Gee, I'm 12 years old, and I've decided that I want to be sexually active, Okay. Um, and I've decided I want to be sexually active with a 17-year-old high school boy. Um, all right, I don't feel comfortable telling my mother that. Well, yeah, okay, because your mother and father, if they've got the sense that God gave a goose, would probably lay down the law and say, no, at 12 years old, you are not old enough to make the decision about whether you're going to have sex with a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old or whatever. And by the way, last time I checked, that's a crime. But regardless, yes, they might be afraid that mom and dad are going to react negatively. Of course mom and dad are going to react negatively, but don't mom and dad have a responsibility and a right to know that? Because when the kid goes off and gets pregnant at 13, mom and dad are going to be the ones more likely than not that are going to have to be wrestling with the decisions about what happened. Yes, the parents might react negatively. Well, no kidding. Part of reacting, part of being a parent is reacting negatively if they feel that the kid is doing something which in the long run might hurt them. And I again, I this isn't a gee, kids shouldn't transition. I would argue that, you know, maybe before you hit puberty, it it's it's not the right time to necessarily know whether you're, you know, really a a boy trapped in a girl's body or, or vice versa. But I do believe it's something that the parents should certainly have some impact on instead of the school simply saying, we're going to do whatever the kid wants. We don't let 
10 and 11 and 12 and 13-year-olds do whatever they want. We don't allow high school kids to do whatever they want. They get some say in it. But, I mean, for example, what if you're a child going through, whose parents are divorced, once you hit 16, the, the, par- the court will take into consideration, give more input on the child's wishes as to who would be the custodial parent, for example. But even then, the kid doesn't get to make the ultimate final decision. The court looks at this type of stuff. Why should the schools be in a position where they're the ones that decide, you know, what what should happen and what shouldn't happen? Let's talk to Scott. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How's it going? Good. What do you think? Um, you touched on a lot of you touched on a lot of the points already that I was going to make, but I guess one of my biggest points is how as an adult can you look at a child, preteen child, and decide that this is okay and they're headstrong enough to make this, like you say, life-changing decision and not include the parents in something like that? I would be livid. And, I, you know, what, if that's what my kids wanted to do one way or the other, that's fine. I mean, we could sit down and we can have a discussion about that. And if that's truly what you want to do, we can we can move on with that. But that's when you're older. There is no way I could I could have even a niece or a nephew come to me and say, uh, Uncle Scott, I want I want to be a boy or I want to be a girl. And me in my mind say, well, that's OK. You're 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 old enough to make that decision. That's that's insane to me. Well, and the problem is it's so publicized and pushed in these kids faces that they just feel like that. You know, on a whim, if, if this is what well, I feel like, this is what I can do. Well, I mean, if Scott, I mean, see, and I, I, look, I, I wrestle with this because I understand that there there is a, a percentage, and you can figure out what the percentage is of kids who, who fit into this sort of category. And, 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 and yeah, for them, you, you want to you want to allow them to do this. But this idea that an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old should get to make this decision by themselves without any sort of parental input and that the schools will then actively conceal with it this from the parents is, is ridiculous. I'm getting one or two texters who are saying, well, don't, don't you understand that this is a huge issue with, you know, that, 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 you know, kids who are trans have a higher suicide rate and things like that. Look, I'm not downplaying the significance of that, but I am saying that the parents need to be involved unless there is a really good reason why the parents wouldn't be, like abuse or something like that. But that's not an element of these schools' policies. It's just, okay, we're going to let the kids decide, and then we're going to work with the kids behind the parents' back. Anybody who thinks that's okay, I'm sorry. That's just nuts. It, it just is, unless there is some compelling reason not to include the parents. And to me, a compelling reason isn't, well, the, the parents might not think this is a good idea or might not think that their 10-year-old is mature enough to make this life-changing decision. Yeah, well, to cut the parents out of that process and to say we're going to let the 10 or 11 or 12-year-old make what is a life-changing sort of decision to me, I just think it's irresponsible and it might even be child abuse to allow the kids to do that without bringing mom and dad in. Byron in West Allis. Byron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, I mean, I guess it just it boils down to, and I think I'm on your side, it's, I'm indifferent whether uh, retransition or assignment, uh, gender assignment. That's not the story. The story is Parents not being told what's yes. happening with their minor children. Yes. And I think it's as simple as parents have to sign a permission slip for you to leave school early or go on a field trip or any of those things. But yet reassigning your whole gender and your life's identity is something that's done under the carpet, uh, you know, 
underneath the parent's eye so that they don't know. Maybe assign it to a school counselor and involve the parent yeah. and kind of work it that way so make sure the kid's safe at home Well, right, and uh, or something more along those lines. Right, and also determine whether or not, now thanks to call by, and also make the determination as to whether or not this th- this child really, really is you know, is that a boy trapped in a girl's body or whatever, as opposed to, oh, this is this is just kind of the, the whim of the day. Because let, let's face it, yeah, are, are there 10 and 11-year-olds who know at the age of 10 and 11 that they are that boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa? I'm sure there are. I'm also sure that there's other people who just don't have that maturity to make that decision. That's why you've got to involve the parents in this decision, not just allow the schools to say, okay, we're going to do whatever they want. One of our texters said, should conversations between students and school counselors be confidential? My answer is it depends. And I would say not in every sort of situation. No, I I don't think that. If the kid kid is doing something that might ultimately be harmful to them, yeah, I think the parents should have the right to know about that because ultimately the parents are going to live with the consequences of these decisions. So, no, I don't think absolutely. If, If you are a student and you tell your high school counselor, for example, that you're contemplating killing yourself, Darn right, I think they should notify the parents, a- absolutely, so the parents can be on the alert, uh, alert for something like this. And, and yes, if you have a kid who say, well, I, I want to transition, I'm 12 years old and I want to transition, yeah, I, I think the parents have the right to know that, especially before the school takes steps to help facilitate that, because what happens when the kid is 13, decides, well, maybe, you know, maybe I, I'm really not... Um, you know, transgender. Okay, well, then what mess have you created? And then the parents find out that the school's been referring to the kid under a different name and making arrangements for, okay, when we go on field trips, um, you're going to room with the males instead of the females. And, and now, okay, I want to do over. It just, you, all I'm saying is you got to bring the parents into it, don't you? There's no question that the uh, entrance of Business person Tim Michaels into the Republican gubernatorial race has really, I, I mean, kind of shaken things up. Tim Michaels, of course, it's the family construction business, Michaels Construction, which is a huge um, infrastructure company. And uh, Tim Michaels says that if he's elected governor, he's going to divest himself of his interest in the family business. But it's been a very, very successful business. They employ over 8,000 people. And it it really kind of started from humble beginnings. In, In many respects, it's a huge American success story and a Wisconsin success story. And it is interesting to me that his presence in the race um, I I think, I don't know that it's fair to say that I think he becomes the leader, but he's He's all over the Internet. He's running all sorts of ads. He is able to self-finance, which is a huge advantage. And I I think he immediately, along with Rebecca Clayfish, I think they become the the top two – Challengers, the two most likely to you know succeed in this, and this isn't knocking at least one of the other candidates. There's the one guy who's the state assembly person who's running on the kind of the tin hat theory of we're going to uh, decertify the election, which as the Wall Street Journal described, that's sort of like the guy in the bar at two o'clock in the morning just screaming, you know, what whatever I want my vote back. Uh, but I mean, I, I think 
you know, I think Michaels becomes one of the leading candidates for a lot of reasons. He's got a very compelling story. So there's all sorts of people out there that are trying to, you know, puncture the Michaels balloon because I think if— Regardless of whether it's him or Rebecca Clayfish, I think they both have a very, very good chance of beating Tony Evers. And over the course of the next couple months, I think a lot of Republicans are going to be deciding which one of those candidates, Clayfish or um, Michaels, which one gives them the best chance, who who is the candidate that gives the best chance of, of beating Evers. So, you know, people are always trying to find flaws. And the story that's out there today is the the Michaels family, which is a Wisconsin-based family. They've got a home. I earlier said it was Dodge County. A couple of people are saying, no, it's in Waukesha County. They have a, a very large, several million dollar home in, in Waukesha County. They also have a very expensive residence in, in New York. And apparently they bought a penthouse in New York when the company was doing business there. And now they have a they have a house on, on Long Island. Very, it looks extremely nice. And I, I said this before at the start of the show, I have some I'm privileged to have some very, very wealthy friends, and they they have multiple houses. I, I have a friend who has a very, very nice place in Florida and a very, very nice place in Arizona and a very, very nice place in West Bend, and they spend time in all three places, but they're, they're Wisconsin residents, and even though they have these nice places, I have another set of friends who have a place in Florida and have a place in Colorado, and they might have another place as far as I know, but but they, they have a very nice place in Wisconsin, and they're, they're clearly Wisconsin residents. So this question that's out there is, it, it's part of it is is fueled, I think, by the gee. If, if people are wealthy, maybe we we should you know not like them. And you're going to get some arguments from Democrats about that. Well, Tim Michaels, he can't relate to the common person, and at the same time, they're, they're not going to have any trouble voting for Alex Lazary, um, who's you know rich because of family money, or Sarah Godlewski, who's the state treasurer, who's rich because she she married into it. You know all those different types of things. But you know it might be an issue with Tim Michaels. Now there is a question I think whenever you have somebody running about residents, and every once in a while you'll have these issues where it becomes okay, you you want to run for an assembly seat, but you're really, you know, living halfway across the state or whatever. And there's, I think, legitimate questions about that. But to me, it's easily resolved. The question is not, do you have multiple places? The question is, where is your your home for where what what state or do you pay your income taxes in are you a state resident in this case you know are you a wisconsin resident for tax purposes and my understanding is michaels is where do you vote do you vote in florida do you vote in new york do you vote wherever and my understanding is for both tax purposes and for voting purposes michaels he votes in in wisconsin to me that kind of ends the inquiry now, I, I, I'm not stupid enough to know that there won't be, like, more arguments that are made and things like that. But to me, again, it's a non-issue, and there, there's going to be a lot of non-issues that are out there. Now, if it turns out that he's a New York resident, you know, coming back here, okay, you know, maybe you can then kind of have that argument, are you kind of a carpetbag or something like that? But that's that's not Tim Michael. So when you hear this story over the next day or two, that's what that is all about. All right, let's take a break. When we come back— Do endorsements matter? And in particular, will Donald Trump's endorsements matter? Stick around. 
There is a a primary which is going to be held tomorrow. Actually, there's a couple primaries, but the one that everybody's focusing on is the Republican Senate primary in Ohio. Republican Senator Rob Portman in Ohio has become recently a pretty reliable Republican state. So I don't know that people necessarily think that it's it's likely to be a pickup. But it, there's, there's several candidates that are running to replace Senator Portman, who is um, retiring. Many of the candidates have actively courted the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. And as a matter of fact, he... Um, he, he's gotten into this because he's come out and he's endorsed um, a guy named J.D. Vance, who is a venture capitalist and, and an author. And so he, he's endorsed Vance. There are a couple candidates, though, who decided they, they didn't want to seek the endorsement of Trump. And as a matter of fact, the, I, I think the smart money says that a guy named Matt Dolan, who's a state senator and a former prosecutor, um, he's – he, he's actively made the decision that he's not going to chase Donald Trump's endorsement. And as a matter of fact, he's been running a campaign as, as a more traditional Republican, um, and he's, like, putting himself up as an option for people who, you know, might – might not like the fact that, you know, other people have tied themselves so closely to Donald Trump. He's also been making the point that, you know, he, he doesn't want to run a national race. This is the the guy who says, look, I, I'm not out seeking endorsements. I'm 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 all about what can we do for Ohio. And I, I don't want to be part of this national race talking about whether the election was stolen and things like that. I want to talk about bread and butter issues for Ohio. And, and that's the way I'm running the campaign. And there's, I mean, who knows? We will know Wednesday morning how the, this primary turns out. But this is going to be, in a very high-profile way, it's going to be one of the tests, early tests, of the power of a Trump endorsement because most of the candidates have gone out of their way to try to get the Trump endorsement, and they ultimately decided to give the blessing to, to J.D. Vance. Whether that's going to carry him over or not, it's going to be interesting because it's also going to be telling, I, I think, maybe for how other candidates decide, you know, the, how actively do they want to have that Trump endorsement? How closely do they want to tie themselves to the, the Trump campaign? Uh, because he, he's been going all over the country, you know, making endorsements. He was in Nebraska, what, Sunday night, and last night, and he, he, he attended a rally for somebody that he'd um, endorsed, and that, that, that guy has all sorts of allegations of groping women and things like that, and there's some people that are just kind of wondering about where some of these endorsements come from. But I, I want to, just in the time remaining to us, I want to ask the underlying question, which is, all right, if Donald Trump endorses a candidate, does that make you more likely or less likely to vote for him? Now, in the Republican primary in Wisconsin, for example, I, I know that various candidates have had meetings with Donald Trump. I don't know that he's going to make an endorsement of, of any of the candidates, um, but but he might. All right. Is the Trump endorsement something that's going to move the needle on, on voting, or might it actually have the effect of backfiring? Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should candidates be falling all over themselves to encourage and attain the endorsement of Donald Trump, or given everything that's going on in the world— 
given where we are and given all the issues, might it be better just to kind of run your own race? 855-616-1620. Now, here's one thing we do know, and, and we should all know for sure, and that is there isn't anybody that's going to be going out of their way to get the endorsement of Joe Biden. You know, uh, the, the poll numbers are just brutal. I mean, the ABC Washington Post poll that came out over the weekend, I mean, I guess the good news is his approval rating is up from 37 percent in that poll um, two months ago, but it's at 42 percent. If you're polling 42 percent, um, that's 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 not a great number. That's just kind of the bottom line of this. And I can't imagine that there's going to be too many Democratic candidates that are going to want to hitch their wagon to the fading star that is Joe Biden. Now, they might have him come in and try to do a fundraiser or something like that. But I don't know that you're going to be having a lot of candidates. They're going to be rolling around trying to get the endorsement of Biden. But my question is, Okay, it's a different world, and Donald Trump is definitely viewed differently, especially by some Republicans, than Biden is, I think, by a lot of Democrats. 855-616-1620. All right, would the Trump endorsement make any difference? Let's go to the text before we take calls. Jeff, less likely. I think former President Trump is dangerous. I have no respect for him. Jeff, Trump may very well claim that if his endorsed candidates lose, the elections were rigged. Well, it could be the case. Jeff, a Trump endorsement will not new, will will move the needle for sure. The question is in what way? Well, yeah, that that is that's the underlying question. Um would candidates be better off running on their own merits. Jeff, I would really like to get back to voting for true Republicans, but in capitals, I will not vote for any candidate that wants an endorsement from Donald Trump. Jeff, I do not plan to vote for candidates that are endorsed by Trump. You're starting to see a pattern from these calls. Jeff, if the candidate is endorsed by Trump, I am absolutely less inclined to vote for him over somebody else. Um, Jeff, I don't care about Donald Trump's influence upon the um, upcoming election and will not vote for anyone who says the election was stolen or in particular seeks advice or public endorsement for Donald Trump. I think it's overdue for fresh ideas and new candidate blood in the Republican Party. Jeff, um, let's see. So now you're going to rip Trump again. Well, I, I don't know if that's a rip of a Trump. It's a it is a reality. Donald Trump wants to be a player in the in electoral process. And the question that I think candidates have to ask themselves is, all right, is it a net plus or is it a net negative? Obviously it's a plus in some people and I but I, I don't know. See to me I to me the endorsement matters less than what it is that you're going to run on. And I guess this is my advice to all candidates who are running to off for office. There there are so many issues that are out there. On a national level, if you want to talk about issues related to to the border and you want to talk about, you know, what we should be doing, you know, with regard to Russia and things like that, you've got, you know, those are are very valid issues. Um, Obviously, whether you're running locally or statewide or whether you're running nationally, if you look at what's going on in the economy, those are valid issues. And and I, I think you can effectively argue as I was saying earlier, that pretty much everything Joe Biden has done in the last year at plus with regard to inflation has been the wrong move. And I think, you know, you can document that pretty much. But I guess that's 
that that's the issues that I think people should be running on. I think people should be running on issues that, that people care about, like the, the schools, and issues about what the role is that the parents have in the schools. You know, what was our COVID policy? Was that the right thing to do? In the state, if you're running in the state, you should be talking about the, the whole, you know, scandal with the unemployment comp and things like that. There's all these issues that are out there that move the needle, I think, when it comes to getting people to go to the polls. And that's why I have just continued to believe if you have to, in order to get an endorsement from Donald Trump, if you have to go and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to relitigate the 2020 election, I, I think that's a losing proposition simply because you're not talking about the things that are really going to get people, at least most people, motivated to go to, to vote. And the best response is when it comes to the election, which would be, hey, in Wisconsin, if you think you really want good election reform, best thing you can do is vote for a candidate that's going to beat Tony Evers, because then we can clear up some of the things that happened in 2020 through the legislature, because it's not going to happen when you've got Evers as the governor. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure and Melissa Barkley, who's back from vacation, we're going to find out what they have on their minds. Please stick around. 